It's an odd world where the Ohio State Buckeyes cannot play football, but high school kids can. Very strange. It's a topic we'll be talking about on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Jane Cahoon and Chris Ranowski. Happy Wednesday. It's Wednesday, right? They all run together. Yeah, yeah. what is time? So. <laughs> time? It's all relative. Let's begin. How much did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine struggle in deciding to let high school football be played this fall while acknowledging it increases the risk of spreading the coronavirus? Jane Cahoon, in his briefing yesterday, that was one exercise in verbal gymnastics. He had to address how dangerous this is while saying he's going to do it anyway. So he talked a bit about his struggle. Let's go through it. Well, you know, Mike DeWine has agonized most over any decision involving kids. That's what it seems like. Remember, daycares, schools, now we have sports. And, you know, he talked about his kids and his grandkids. And this was in between all the technical difficulties they had <laughs> yesterday, too. But, and, and how he knows how important sports are. And then, you know, but he had another expert on to talk about the spread and the, yeah, it's just like a total balancing act for him. But, you know, in the end, he he's allowing this to go forward and recognizing also that a lot of school districts just aren't. They're not ready. They're, some of them are delaying but, it. And, but let's talk about the dilemma, right? So, so we know on the play side that this increases the chance kids will get a very dangerous virus. And we know that kids are getting it in huge numbers now. They weren't in the beginning. So so that's the the negative, right? The pro is <laughs> that that it's good for their 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 character. It's it's psychological help. And as he said, they'll be doing something else if they're not playing football. <laughs> when you put the balance of scales together, it seems like protecting them from a possibly fatal or very damaging virus that we don't know much about, it kind of wins there. Yeah. <laughs> but he chose to let them play. Is, is it possible that he knows that districts are struggling with this and they'll probably just, many of them will cancel anyway and then it's not his call? I think he realizes that. I mean, just like the school reopenings, he's putting it in in their hands and saying, you know, he trusts them to do the right thing. But as we saw, you know, a, a lot of these districts just are not ready to do this and they're, they've already postponed it. The thing that throws me is when he said, I get that a lot of districts want to postpone to the spring. And we've talked to the Ohio High School Athletic Association and they're OK with that. But when we were talking to Dave Campbell after the briefing, I said, Dave, how does that work? Because they're all in these conferences. So if half the schools in a conference say we're moving to spring how, who do you play? How do you schedule? I know. It's such a mixed bag. I mean, you have some schools, they haven't even decided what to do yet. Others are going in the spring. Others are waiting till, you know, after the first, I don't know, several weeks, you know, going into October or something. It's just... It's and Dave, Dave's response was basically, you know, we have no clue. The one thing we know <laughs> is for the conferences that are playing, They've cut back to a six-game season, and then it goes straight to the playoffs. It's just a strange one. You know, the, the spring football season is interesting because, you know, that starts in the middle of winter when we often have some snow on the ground in these yeah. parts, which would make football a little more interesting. But but it was a, a very, very mixed message that you got from the governor, basically 
doing something they never do in Columbus, which is allowing home rule to prevail. So. Oh, wow. That, yeah. I would think maybe uh, John Houston, the former, you know, football star, maybe had a big influence here. Well, and, you know, a little advice for John Houston. When you're doing public speaking, know what your talking points are before you launch into you. <laughs> Yesterday was a Ouch. lot of lather. Ouch. And, and it just did not seem like he had thought through what he was going to say. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Almost six months into the pandemic, with huge numbers of people successfully getting their jobs done from home, are Northeast Ohio companies ready to downsize their downtown offices and let work from home be permanent? Chris Ranowski, our real estate writer, Eric Heisig, dug back into this. We've been talking about it across the five plus months. We've been working from home. We thought we might have a little more resolution here. What did he learn? I don't know. You tell me. You're the boss. Let me know as soon as you. As soon as are we going back? <laughs> no, uh, there was a, a a story that came out of Chicago this week that said that um, a Chicago-based real estate firm called JLL uh, had surveyed Midwestern companies and and came back that 23 percent of surveyed companies said that they will need a lot less space in the future and plan to downsize. And uh, a lot was defined by a reduction of more than 20%. And they talked to about 130 companies varying sizes between uh, in cities and varying sizes between like Des Moines and Pittsburgh and, and Cleveland. But, but when we talked to uh, a lot of our big corporations around here, uh, a lot of them said they still haven't really decided what they're going to do with it. I have a suspicion that, you know, they've had conversations and maybe they're not ready to sort of talk about this stuff publicly to us and to the public for reasons that might be related to, you know, making their employees anxious or, you know, not being ready to talk about it. But a lot of the companies here say that it's, it's still too soon to really say if they're going to go back or not. But um, you know, we do have a lot of uh, companies here that have been allowing people to work from home. I think Progressive has been doing it. Travel Centers of America. A lot of companies have have already just sort of let people work from home this whole time. And so, you know, and we're no exception. Uh, but, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's it's got to be something that's making commercial real estate folks a little nervous because, you know, we do have a lot of office space downtown, despite the conversion of a lot of it to apartment buildings. There's still there's still a lot of space. You had companies that just open headquarters. You have companies that are about to build new headquarters like Sherwin Williams. So, you know, there's there's still a lot of plans to build. There's still a lot of space. But, you know, what it will look like in six months is still kind of up in the air, at least in Northeast Ohio. Well, and as we talked about earlier this week, Dave Yost, the attorney general, has has said he expects to have 30 percent less office space. I mean, this does seem inevitable. The money to be saved well, is extraordinary. And so why not do it? And plus, I think, I mean, the sense you get is while people miss seeing their colleagues and having some social action, they, they do like the convenience of working from home. And so... Having a place where you might be able to get together for meetings once a week might supplant the need for massive amounts of desk space. Yeah, I mean, it's a I mean, there's give and take. I mean, we've ex, we've experienced some things that we, we think to ourselves, oh, it would have been nice to, you know, be around my colleagues when we were working on this thing or whatever. But for the most part, you know, I think. I think you're seeing a lot of, of, of upsides to people doing this. You know, you're, I mean, 
fewer cars are on the road. You have, so you're, you know, there's less pollution, you know, you, there's less traffic and, you know, and, and people get time back, you know, I mean, you're, you're, you're not on the road. Some people commute for a half hour, 40 minutes every day, and you're getting time back and you're having a little more freedom. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of pluses to this. I, well, I, think, and- I, I, and I think, I think a lot of hesitance for some companies to come back was the fact that they would have to kind of retrofit their offices to make them safe for, you know, social distancing and some companies might not have the room for that. And, and, and people would have to wear masks all day. Right. And you got to wear masks that. all day. And it's in, you know, I mean, that's going to create some dissatisfaction among your employees. So. Well, you'd be in an office together, but you'd mm-hmm. all be distant and wearing masks. So it's nothing like the social interaction you had before. I mean, that's, that's the fallacy is it's not going back to what it was. Look, in our case, you know, we did a, we did a company wide survey and, in in our newsroom, people felt like there was better communication than there was. I mean, we always had pretty good marks for communication, but it was even better. And I think it's because it's so forced. Like we realized, okay, we're not together. So we're going to schedule a very regular set of communications that where we're we're having conversations even when we don't need to. Right. But 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 I think that leads to some, you know, if I'm in the same office with you. Uh, you know, unless I have something to to talk to you about, we're in the same office together today. We're talking multiple times a day. So I don't and know. I, I, and I feel like there's, I think a lot of resistance to work at home comes from old attitudes of management where, you know, if, if you don't have the ability to sort of look and lord over your employees all day, you can't keep an eye on them and you can't you know, you can't keep tabs of what they're doing and if they're not clocking in at this time and clocking out at this time. But I think for the most part, I and, and most people will agree with this, and I think most research agrees with this, that most companies have not experienced a drop in productivity, which no. is important to the bean counter types. So I think there's kind of a fallacy of you know, if you leave people to their own devices, they're just going to screw around or, you know, you know, not do their job. And I think most people, I, I think we're proving not just us, but I think, I think a lot of companies are starting to see it. And so, you know, people when you look at, work done. right. right. And when you look at what done. Yoast is doing and when you look at, 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 you know, the ability for the government to do this, I think, you know, if, if the government wants to do this, that's great because it could save them money in the long run. But, you know, they're going to have to upgrade their technology. You know, I mean, we're we're talking about a government that comp- that claims that they can't release uh, contact tracing data because their computers are old. And if you're if you're if you're creating a, a work environment that relies on technology and the Internet and networks, then, uh, you know, you're really going to have to do some upfront investment in technology. So yeah. Although. All right. But on the contact <laughs> tracing, I reject that. We're talking to them. I don't believe that they can't turn that data. That's you're off topic. To, you're, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose's latest strategy for having the state pay the postage for your mail-in ballot in the presidential election? Jane Cahoon, LaRose goes back and forth on helping us vote and blocking us from voting. <laughs> the previous conversation is about how he won't allow more than one drop box in any in any county, even though, as our editorial board pointed out, that makes a per capita drop box number really vary from urban centers to rural. But now he's trying to make it easier to vote. What's he doing? Well, he's been thwarted by the legislature in his attempt to 
be able to include a postage paid envelope with with people's ballots. So he's trying this sort of end around that uh, former Governor John Kasich was pretty successful with when he when he expanded Medicaid. LaRose is going to go to the state controlling board to try to get them to release three million bucks to spend on the postage, although he says it's probably going to cost closer to two million. Uh, anyway, the lawmakers have, you know, not only not uh, uh, granted his request, but they but they've got some legislation pending that would really prohibit him from providing postage for some of these mailings. But, you know, LaRose is dealing with the fact that double the number of people might be voting by mail in this election because of the coronavirus. They're they're scared to vote in person. So um, apparently the money is there. It's it would come from his business services division. And um, so he's on Monday, he's going to go ask the controlling board for this. You know, it, it's the right thing to do, obviously, because of all of the coronavirus issues and the undermining of the post office by the president. But in Ohio, it is up to the legislature to set election law, right? And so, I mean, he's doing an end around the legislature, but it is kind of the legislature's job. And so if the legislature does not want postage paid, really, shouldn't it not be paid? Well, they they haven't officially voted. You know, they haven't. I mean, I think that passed the House, but it's pending in the Senate and they're on summer recess and they're worried about their own reelections right now. So I don't know if they could come back, you know, after if LaRose gets this permission, if they could come back afterward and say, uh uh-uh, uh, no, you can't do this. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I guess. But, there, this is Chris Warnowski. If if they're worried about their own reelection, uh, shouldn't they make it sure we have an election? <laughs> I mean, isn't that part of you know their responsibility? Well, there a lot of the Republican-controlled uh, legislature. You know, they they come from districts that are severely gerrymandered and. You know, it depends on the sentiment in their districts about this, I guess. But get back to the to the balance of power. Okay, you're saying they haven't passed the bill to prohibit it, but they haven't passed the bill to pay for it. I mean, if they if the right. legislature but wanted he's to pay the for money it, from his own office, so it's not like I don't think the legislature has to make an appropriation for this because he's saying in the Secretary of State's business division that the money is there. But does the Secretary of State have the power? I guess to make this kind of decision affecting elections. It's where, I guess it's where the line is, where the legislature's power ends and the role of the secretary of state comes in. Look, I, th- I think he's doing a good thing. I think they should provide the postage. They should make voting as easy as possible, as often as possible. And the legislature has been screwing this up for many, many years. It's not just this legislature, but, but you know, the ends don't justify the means. If the system is set, so the legislature passes election law. I, it does raise a question about LaRose's do, what LaRose is doing. And I, I don't know what the answer is, frankly. Uh, I just thought it was worth discussing. <laughs> this week in the CLE. Are more people flying out of Cleveland Hopkins International Airport? And how do the numbers compare to last year? Chris Ranowski, the coronavirus, as we all know, devastated flying. We've You've asked several times who in the right mind is getting on a plane these days. But we got some new numbers out of Hopkins showing things are increasing, but not good. No, and it's real. It's really not good. So, the so we'll start with the good news: the that the passenger traffic through Cleveland Hopkins Hopkins Airport 
uh, was up more than 50% over June of this year. But when you compare that to last year, the numbers are way down. So more than uh, 320,000 travelers uh, used the airport in July, which is up, which is, is uh, like, 53% from June is, is sort of the number, but the July figure, uh, is 67% below the same month last year. So in July, 2019, close to a million people passed through the airport. And, and to give you just an example of how, how dire the things are travel wise at the airport right now, coming into 2020, the airport chief, Robert Kennedy had predicted that the number of travelers using the airport would top last year's 10.04 million. Uh, and passenger traffic uh, was solid for the first few months of this year. But then the virus hit and the decline prompted layoffs at the airlines. And now they're anticipating about 4.1 million people will travel through the airport. So about 6 million less than they anticipated is going to go, is going to be traveling. You know, some, bright spots again i it's it's inexplicable why people are traveling to florida but you know united did, did just add four routes to florida i think last week or the week before um so you know you're seeing some people who are eager to get on airplanes and travel but but again i i i can't explain why anybody would want to travel right now low prices or not yeah i i, I still am struck by how many people are flying. I guess what we haven't seen is even anecdotal evidence that people flying in and out of Hopkins are getting the coronavirus while they're on the plane. So maybe what the airlines are insisting on with masks and what they've done to disinfect the planes is has kept flights from being a, a big spreader of the disease. Because I don't know, has anybody seen anything? I, I read everything I can. I mean, I right? I mean, I. I I'm I don't know that we would be getting reliable information about that from either the city, the airport, or the health health board. I mean, you know, I mean, we're not getting a lot of details as about the origin of of where the virus is coming from as as far as you know the the spread in our community. But you know, I mean, adding four flights to one of the worst states in the union, you know that. I don't think that bodes well for people who are going there and coming back, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, you're supposed to quarantine when you come back from Florida, it's one of those States. And, and, and it just, you know, I, I, I don't see any good side to that um, other than, you know, for United, but you know, it, it's, you know, I guess enjoy Disneyland and, you know, staying at home for two weeks when you get back. But well, maybe if we're successful in our efforts to pry the contact tracing data out of the grips of the state health department, we'll be able to show whether flights <laughs> cause this or not. It's hey, this week. Wish, wishful thinking, sir. No, wishful it's thinking. not. We're not giving up. <laughs> it's this week in the CLE. Did getting rated a red zone county help Cuyahoga and other urban counties get the coronavirus surge under control and do rural counties now account for the fastest rate of coronavirus spread? Jane Cahoon, Rich Exner, as he always does, offered a unique perspective on what the numbers are showing. So take us through. 
Yeah, this urban rural, uh, the, those developments are, are really interesting. Rich took a look at the data and it suggests that, that being in the red zone might have made a difference for Cuyahoga and some of the other big counties. And I would assume that's probably because the red counties were under a mask mandate sooner than the other counties. They, they got the order a couple of weeks before Governor Mike DeWine issued his statewide mask mandate on July 23rd. In any event, Cuyahoga, Franklin, and Hamilton counties, they were all running well ahead of the um, statewide rates for newly reported COVID cases uh, on July 2nd when, when they were included in this red zone. Uh, but, you know, the cases did continue to rise after that, but then Within weeks, the the new case rates began to decline in all three of those counties while they rose for the rest of the state. So, you know, now Cuyahoga and Hamilton are near the statewide average and, and Franklin County is, is also down, though not, not quite as much. So, so that was a really interesting development. And then at the same time, uh, yesterday at the uh, briefing, DeWine announced that in the rural areas, things are not looking as good. For the first time, 10 rural counties topped the list of places where the coronavirus is spreading the fastest. And that was led by Mercer County in the western part of the state. Um, so it's, as I said, it's just a really interesting development where the, and as I said, I'm attributing it to the earlier mask mandates in those urban areas. You know, there's two things. Um, um, one is that Cuyahoga was within a hair's breadth of being an orange county, dropping out of the red zone last week. You mean week. purple? Um, no, no, no. It, last oh, week, dropping. it was okay, almost okay. out of red zone, and this week it might. But when you talk about the rural counties, I'm reminded of the arguments all of the legislators from the rural counties made <laughs> early on that they should have different rules than the urban counties where this right. is such a problem. So maybe, maybe now's the time to bring back that discussion and say, hey, rural counties, you're the problem. Maybe right. we should have some different rules for you folks. It was, it, it, you know, DeWine very early said it would be foolish to have geographic rules. He changed his, his mind later, but maybe he was right originally. That yeah, he needed a statewide yeah. approach. He did impose a statewide mask order based on the success that you mentioned in the urban counties. Once the masks hit, things started to change and, and now it's statewide. So there, there also is more opposition to mask wearing in the rural counties. So that's right. I'm thinking back to our uh, ex house speaker, Larry Householder, who wouldn't wear a mask and would not impose rules in the house for members to wear masks. He wouldn't wear a mask till he was walking out of the courthouse after his arraignment (laughs) on being a racketeer. So (laughs) then the mask was very convenient for him. Yes. Okay. Wow, wait, in, wait until he learns about the spread in state prisons. That's going to be... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, no, actually, he'd be in that federal prison. So oh, that's true. Okay, well, then he'll be fine, I'm sure. <laughs> well, unless it's in Elkton. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are some black women and girls in Cleveland saying about the importance of having Kamala Harris on the presidential ballot? Chris Ranowski, this, as we all know, was a benchmark moment, finally, a black woman is on the presidential ballot first time in the country's history. We wondered whether that would have significance in a big way for people who live in Cleveland. What did we find out? Um, I resoundingly, I think a lot of young black, like black women and, and young girls who uh, are finally sort of seeing themselves represented in 
this high, high place in government are just really excited about the nomination of Kamala Harris. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's one of these things that sort of supersedes the politics of everything. You know, I, I, you know, I, I, I have friends who, you know, when, when Harris was, was nominated, they point to her being a prosecutor and, and her record and all this. And, and I think, you know, we can, we can talk about that. And I think there's a great discussion to be had about that. And we could scrutinize her record and all of those things. But when you strip that all away and when you look at how meaningful this is for, for black girls and young black women, it, it's, it's actually kind of nice and, and it's really touching. And, and, and frankly, I think, you know, given the political environment in this country right now, it's nice to see people, you know, looking at the government with some optimism and with some pride and, and, and with some hope for, you know, the future of our government and our politics. And, and so I think from that perspective, I think, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of positive in, in, in Biden's selection of, of Harris as his running mate. And, you know, we, we you know, everyone that we talked to said, you, you know, it's just, it's great to see somebody who looks like me in this position. And, and, you know, I, and, and they, they all seem very eager to support her and, 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 and are just happy to sort of see themselves represented in this way. There is a pendulum shift, though. We had the same conversations after Barack Obama was elected president, and we thought we had moved to a certain place in this country regarding race. And then we elected a president who many point to multiple examples of of his behavior as, as very much taking us backwards in terms of race relations in the country. Because I, I do remember almost identical conversations back 12 years ago with um, with the ascendancy of Barack Obama. Hopefully it'll stick this time. Well, one of the one of the things that I you know, when you when you hear people and when you talk like presidential scholars and 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 people who who study race and, and, and the United States, you know, the period of Barack Obama's presidency, I think there was a lot of complacency on this issue, you know, that that a lot of people and I'm and I'm talking specifically about white Americans I think you know we we looked at the sort of symbolic ascendancy of Barack Obama as proof that racism was dead right. I mean you, you heard people right. say that you saw yeah, we're newspaper done. headlines yeah. and yeah. you know and and really what happened was is is that you know the people who have you know kind of gross racial ideas were kind of pushed to the margins and pushed down and they found, you know, a community and voice on the internet that grew and was easily exploited. You know, that white national populism that we saw bubble up in 2015 and 2016, you know, you know, that was a lot of resentment, you know, this idea of white replacement and, and, and the right. absurd Trump, notion of white identity. And, Trump played you know, to that. Trump used oh, that. Specifically, to... Steve Bannon understood that, that was a very easy to mobilize community online. You know, he, he started, it started in gaming and then it, it became the alt-right and it, and, and it all morphed into this thing that, that the Trump campaign latched onto. And, 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 and honestly, I think it took a lot of people by surprise. I think people were surprised that these, these sort of, U- right. ugly we, racial sentiments. I got to cut you off because we, we got to move on. <laughs> this week in CLE, 
What did former Republican New Jersey Governor Chris Christie have to say about former Republican Ohio Governor John Kasich endorsing the Democratic presidential candidate for president and speaking at the Democratic National Convention? Jane Cahoon, Chris Christie is always colorful, and he had some things to say. What were they? Oh, it's so funny. Gone are the days when when Kasich and Christie were fellow governor buddies, you know. And uh, anyway, since Kasich made this speech... You know, the never Trumpers, of course, liked it, but the Trump Republicans have just been piling on him relentlessly. And uh, Christie, who was also Kasich's rival for the 2016 presidential nomination, basically blasted Kasich as a a backstabber and, and somebody who's untruthful. He said, do you know how many Republican governors of his colleagues, his sitting colleagues at the time, endorsed John Kasich for president? Zero. And he said the reason they didn't endorse him is because he's a backstabber and an untruthful guy. And um, in a way, this wasn't new because you might remember the fun story we had last year when when Christie came out with his book. Um, you know, he, he recounted a, a conversation they had after you know, Christie had to drop out of the race before Kasich and Kasich kind of preached to him. This is according to Christie in his book, you know, God wanted you to play right field and you insisted on playing shortstop. And no matter how many times God told you to play right field, you insisted on playing shortstop. And last night you went out to shortstop and the ball went through your legs. (laughs) And then so Christie says in his book, Right there, I understood why so many people in politics despised John Kasich. <laughs> I don't know how much of a plus it was to have him speak at the Democratic National Convention, but you do love this this kind of sport between the former Republican governors. It's this week in the CLE. We'll have to leave it there, guys. We went uh, We went a bit long. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jane. Thanks, everybody, for listening to This Week in the CLE. 